We are in a review session uh, for uh, this evening. The kids in the back are um, uh, going over sort of the questions and answers that they've learned over the past 10 weeks. Um, and I guess the way I guess the way to look at it is it's 20 weeks because we do we do two weeks on them with the kids. We here just do one week for the questions and answers. And so, you know, I was thinking, what should we talk about this evening, I thought it'd be a good time for us to just do the same thing that they're doing, sort of step back and review the questions uh, and answers that we've looked at. And so, um, again, we are considering and looking at the goodness of God. And so what we're going to do is there's been 10 questions and 10 answers with scripture passages that support those answers that we're going to go back through and review. And I'm not going to spend the same level of engagement with each question uh, that, that, uh, that uh, we've gone through, um, but I, I do want to sort of pull out some, some things and ask some questions, have some discussion uh, about some things as we go through this. So again, the goodness of God. I think we can all agree the Bible clearly says that God is good, right? God is good. Um, and so the first question is, well, what is our good God like? And notice what the answer is. God is holy, loving, and perfect in all he is and all he does. So that first um, statement there focuses on three main ways in which his goodness is portrayed to us. He is holy. He is without sin. He is completely separate from that which is evil. Holiness means to be separate, to come out and be apart from. And so if God is good, then he, that means he is fully and completely separated or apart from anything that would be bad or evil. His goodness is also seen in the fact that he's loving. He is a God who loves his creation. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And then this God who is holy and loving, he has no imperfections in him. He is perfect in every aspect of who he is and what he does. And when we speak of his perfection, of course we mean that there is no sense in which he is um, sinful or no sense in which he falls into sin. But not only that, he makes no mistakes. There's no omission, no failure, no fault that can be placed at who God is. And this reality is something that he both has in his very essence as who he is and also in his actions. If God had a failure in his essence, then we could not be confident that his actions would all be good. But this answer tells us that uh, he is perfect in all that he is and all that he does. He's true, noble, just, pure, and praiseworthy. And it is because of God that we even know what good is. And this is where we're sort of going to look at, uh, look at things this evening. In fact, if you want to, you can turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. We're not going to get there for a little bit yet. But I think it's important to note in Genesis chapter 3 that um, God is the one who defines goodness. And really the problem with humanity is that we seek goodness apart from reference to God. So the only way that we can truly know what is good is to know the God that is good. Now, I think it's important for us to realize that this is a truth. Psalm 34, 8 is the verse that goes along with this. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is 
good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so the goodness of God is clearly portrayed. And there's many other passages that we could go to 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 make this point um, real. But let's just be honest. There are probably times in your life where you've questioned the goodness of God. There have been circumstances that you have faced that you can look at and you can say, how in the world can this be good? Whether it be a level of suffering that you faced, whether it be the way you're treated by someone that's close to you, whether it be um, circumstances in your life that, that you just can't look at and see, how can this be good? Yet the Bible says that God is good. So when those conflicts come up, when, when our experience seems to contradict what God's word says, what are we to do? What things should we depend upon? Our experience or on God's word? What do you think? God's word. All right, we know that. What are we so prone to do? To depend on what? Our experience. To let our experience be the thing that defines who God is. Now, what I find interesting about this verse is that the goodness of God is not meant to be merely an intellectual concept, right? The psalmist here doesn't say, the Lord is good. It's not said in a vacuum. It's not said as this sort of ethereal statement that we can assent to and, and have some sort of knowledge of, but rather he speaks of it as a personal experience, taste and see that the Lord is good. The scriptures make it abundantly clear for us that goodness finds its very definition and it finds its very hope for us in experiencing the goodness of God. This is really what it means to be blessed. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And so I think what we need to do is in those moments where our circumstances seem to pull us away and to contradict the idea that God is good, we need to come back and say, okay, why am I thinking this way? What is it in my life that is causing me to doubt the goodness of God? And it might be an issue, a health issue. It might be a financial problem. It might be a circumstance that you face, something that came up that you weren't expecting. Things didn't go the way you thought that they were going to go. Maybe there's a level of suffering that you're facing. And, and in those moments, it's good for us to come back to this verse and say, okay, I'm not getting it. I'm not tasting the goodness of God. Where have I gone wrong here? And to come back and realize if we believe that God has spoken through his word and that everything God says is true, then we need to trust God's word over our experiences. Um, I've been realizing this particularly as I've had to start being more concerned with my health having to go to the doctor, having to take medicine, and, and having most particularly to cut out drinking Coca-Cola, all right? I love, I love Coke. I've loved it my entire life. I used to drink copious amounts of Coke, and for me, it was good, right? I loved it. I would, I would come home, and there'd be a, I really loved like a, an 
almost ice cold Coca-Cola, getting it out of the fri- out of the fridge and opening it up, and and just that that fizziness, that coldness, that that feel as it goes down your throat. Oh, everything about it is wonderful. It's good, right? Is Coke good for you? No. And so I've had to cut that out. Now, I'll be honest, when I started cutting it out, I didn't really think it was that good. But yet it is the good thing for me. Sometimes the circumstances in life that are, and let's just be honest, they are immensely difficult. Not trying to diminish the reality of the pain that we face in this world, but Oftentimes, God brings those things into our life so that we would truly experience a level of his goodness that we would not know otherwise. We get to, we get to go deeper in our tasting of the goodness of God. So, the Lord is good. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It needs to be an experience. It needs to be something that we ourselves are intimately acquainted with. Which brings us to the next question. If God is good, then what does he do with that goodness? Well, he gives us all good things. Who gives us all good things? God gives us all good things. Now, this is important to note because we are going to want to think that we can give ourselves good things, that we are the ones who bring about goodness. But it is important to recognize God is the one who does this. Psalm 84.11 For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is the one who becomes the only, the only true source of goodness. And where we go astray is when we seek to find goodness in other sources. Which brings us then to question three. How good is God? How good is God? He's holy. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly pure. And then I spent a good amount of time talking about this last statement. I want to talk about it again. Because in one sense, we could maybe look at this and think this isn't a way in which God exhibits his goodness. He's perfectly committed to his glory. Now, we talked about this when we came to this question. What would we say about a person that was fully and perfectly committed to their own glory? Would we say that that's a good thing? No. We call them prideful. We call them self-centered. We call them narcissistic. We'd use a number of different things that we'd point to and say, someone who is perfectly committed to his glory, why, how can that be good? And then we see the scriptures, and particularly this question, this isn't scripture, but this question gives us a, a, a look into something that scripture clearly bears out. God is perfectly committed to his glory. So if it's narcissistic for us, if it's wrong for us, to seek our own glory, why is it okay for God to seek His glory? And what we actually came to realize, and we're going to look at here just a little bit as well, 
God's commitment to His glory actually brings about our greatest good. In fact, it would be bad for us if God was not perfectly committed to His glory. great example of that is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 61, 1 through 3. Now, this is a prophecy about Christ. All right? the, Lord, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is actually in the Gospels referred to as referring to Jesus, that He is the one who is working through the work of the Spirit. Why has God anointed Christ with the Spirit? He's anointed me to, and notice, bring good news to who? The poor. So the, the reason God gives the Spirit to Christ is so that Christ can share the gospel. He sent me. And notice all of the things that are done here are acts of goodness for those who, he do, who does them for. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion. To give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. The oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord. And then notice, what is the end goal of all of this? That he may be what? Glorified. Are there good things that Isaiah describes here in Isaiah 61? Yes. I mean, look at these things again. Good news. Um, binding up the brokenhearted. You know, sometimes we look at the things that we face in life and, and physical scars can heal faster than emotional scars. It's easy to put a broken arm in a splint. It's much harder to splint the broken heart. But yet God comes and in His goodness binds up the brokenhearted to those who are in the chains of whatever it may be that is holding them back, that is keeping them in captivity. Christ comes and says, I give you freedom. Freedom from the things that bind you. I open the prison to those who are bound. I come and proclaim a time of favor from the Lord. And these next things, a beautiful headdress instead of ashes. What's amazing to note here is Isaiah is speaking to Israel and, and speaking of the fact that their country is falling apart. It's decaying. It's rotting from the inside out. And the people of God are mourning what is happening because of God's discipline upon them, because the nations are coming and, and running rampshot over what they have. And so what would be the response is to put ashes on your head in mourning. But God comes and He turns that mourning into gladness by putting a beautiful headrest instead of ashes. He anoints the head with the oil of gladness rather than mourning. He gives a garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. And the end result of this work that Christ does 
is so that we may all be called oaks of righteousness. How many of you want to be called an oak today? <laughs> you know, the, the concept here of an oak of righteousness, when you think of a big oak tree, what do you think of? Stability, strength, power. And what Christ does is he takes a people who are caught in sin and unrighteousness, who are pursuing with all of their might that which is not good, and he transforms them so that by faith in Christ alone, they can be declared trees of righteousness, whose roots go deep, who will never be uprooted. And all of this, all of these good things that God is doing, and particularly the greatest good, which is declaring us righteous before him, that all is done to his glory. The implication is that God does these things so that he may be glorified. Jonathan Edwards speaks of this. Jonathan Edwards says, God, in seeking his glory seeks the good of his creatures. And in communicating his fullness for them, he does it for himself because their good, which he seeks, is so much in union and communion with himself. And here's the key. God is their good. Their excellency and happiness is nothing but the emanation and expression of God's glory. God, in seeking their glory and happiness, seeks himself. And in seeking himself, i.e. himself diffused and expressed, which he delights in as he delights in his own beauty and fullness, he seeks their glory and happiness. If God is our good, if God is the only source of goodness for us, then His glory is the very thing that brings about the only hope of goodness for us. The verse that went along with this was not in Isaiah 61, but was in Isaiah 6.3. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Just to quickly note, the angels say this around the throne of God. Isaiah is there. And what is Isaiah's response when he sees all this? He says, I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. And he what? Dwells in a people of unclean lips. I, I've, we, I think we don't connect those two things together because it would seem from the outside that God's glory is not seen in this world, right? It would seem that the corrupt lips of mankind would detract from the glory of God. But the angels declare unreservedly in heaven that even today, even when corrupt men walk upon this earth, God's glory is still filling all that he has created. Which is a wonderful hope for us. Because if God himself is our goodness and the pursuit of his glory is the pursuit of our own goodness... If this world still exhibits the glory of God, nothing can stop His glory, which means nothing can stop goodness for us. 
It's a wonderful hope that we have in who our God is. Well, this God who is perfectly pursuing his own glory, we come to this question, well, does he ever sin? Now, this is sort of Christianity 101, right? Does God ever sin? And the answer we would quickly say is no. And of course, the answer points to that. God's character and actions are always righteous. It is impossible for him to treat someone in a sinful way. Now, this is Christianity 101. This is Bible 101. God doesn't sin. So that settles it, right? And we're going to be on, and that's the truth that we're going to carry throughout our entire lives, right? It's interesting that we're often tempted to think of God's actions in categories of sin. You say, really? Well, let's just, let's just stop for a second. We still have a sin nature, right? We still struggle with the old man that we need to put off and kill, but yet he's still there, right? What if, what if we didn't have that sin nature? What if, what if we were perfectly innocent? Well, certainly then we would never conceive of God as being or doing anything sinful, right? What happened to Genesis 3? What did the serpent say to Adam and Eve? Genesis 3, 4 through 5. Again, he asks, can you eat of any tree? It's like, we can eat of any tree except this tree, and the day we eat of it, we will surely die. Notice what the serpent says. You will not surely die. What does he accuse God of by saying that? Lying. He accuses God of lying. And then he goes on, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good. And evil. In fact, the very thing in which he looks to here and says is seeking to accuse God of selfishness, of prideful arrogance, of, 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 in some sense, a desire to conceal the truth because he's fearful of man's ability. That's what Satan is saying to Eve. He's accusing God of a number of sinful actions. Now, Eve has not sinned yet. Sin has not entered the world of humanity. And so she is perfectly without a sin nature. So she should never consider what the devil is saying, right? But we know how the story goes. What does she do? She believes the lie of the devil. And she questions the goodness of God. And as a result... Humanity is plunged into sin. So again, we would say, yes, God never sins. We would be quick to answer that question. But any time we go against God's word, we believe a lie that he is withholding goodness from us. And we are saying he is not the source of all good. Now, this forms more complicated viewpoints in our day and age. There's a teaching today that um, 
oftentimes seeks to sort of pit these two things together, and it's what we call open theism. Open theism teaches us that we, we, there, there's two seemingly contradictory statements in Scripture about God, seemingly contradictory. The one is, as we've been looking at, God is perfectly good, right? Perfectly good. But the other thing that we look at is um, God is also completely powerful, sovereign, in control of all things. There's nothing that God cannot do that's not in it, that's, as long as it's in accordance with his character and nature. So God is good. He has all power. But then as creator, he created this world. But what do we know exists in this world? Is this world all good? No. There's evil. There's sin. There's terrible things that people do to each other. And, and this reaches the most extreme examples. If you've read anything of what has been happening, what happened when um, Hamas attacked Israel, it is barbaric. So what's going on here? If God is good, shouldn't he stop that type of thing? Or if God is powerful enough, why doesn't he stop? If those two things are true, God is good and God is powerful, then why does evil exist? And so open theism comes at it and they says, well, we can't come to the conclusion that God is not good, but we can come to the conclusion that God is not powerful. And open theism seeks to pit those two things against each other so that we would say, well, God doesn't want it to be this way, but he can't help it. Which contradicts the very clear stains of Scripture that there is nothing too hard for our God. Well, I think what we see in Isaiah 61 helps us to answer this question a little bit. Because it is through evil that God brings about the greatest good. What is the greatest act of evil that has ever occurred on this planet? The crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it is through the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, which is the worst thing that has ever happened, that God brings about our greatest good. Because through Christ's death on the cross, we can be redeemed. We can be proclaimed oaks of righteousness. The psalm here, Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. Now, some of these next questions sort of hash out that idea. Does God ever sin? Well, does, if God never sins, then does he ever lie? No, God never lies. He's absolutely trustworthy and his word is absolute truth. Titus chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writing to Titus, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the world began. Does God then give to everyone good things they do not deserve? And God is gracious. He's a gracious God and he delights in giving good things to everyone. And we talked about the different concepts of grace, of what we call, what's often called by theologians, common grace or universal grace. Listen, God does not deal with humanity immediately as they deserve. What do we deserve at this very moment? What do we deserve? What have we earned by our, by our sin? The wrath of God, death. That's what we deserve, not in the future. It's what we deserve right now. But yet God is gracious and he does not deal 
with us. His, huma- his goodness is seen in how he deals with both the unregenerate and the regenerate. He's good to all. And I think it, it's important to note that this goodness of God to all Apart from God's grace, humanity takes the goodness of God and distorts it. So that that goodness, which is given, as we've seen, to glorify God. What do we use the goodness of God to do? To glorify who? Not God, but who? Ourselves. Here's just a great example of the goodness of God. God has endowed some people with incredible athletic ability. You know, I've seen... I've seen athletes do amazing things on the field. You know what's very rare to find among athletes? Those who truly use the abilities they've been given to glorify God and not themselves. Who does Jesus say was the greatest man born, among, born to women? John the Baptist. Greatest man apart from Christ who ever lived. All right? So if there's anybody who's got it all together, it's John the Baptist. What does John the Baptist say as his ministry is beginning to diminish and Christ is beginning to become more popular? He must what? Increase. What must I do? Decrease. He uses the goodness of God given to him not to praise himself, but to praise Christ. Apart from God's grace working in our hearts, we will always distort the goodness of God given to us to pursue our own glory and not His. Psalm 145, 8 through 9 The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to how many? All. And His mercy is over all that He has made. Now, as a good God, he is also perfectly just. And as a just God, he has to deal with sin. And so the question we looked at is, what would God rather do? Would he rather, would he rather punish sin or forgive? And again, I, I don't like this question to some extent because it pits two things that God is perfectly satisfied to do. Because God is glorified both in the salvation of those who turn to Christ and in his judgment on sin. But nonetheless, we do know the scriptures describe him as a God who loves to forgive. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And he shows that desire, that mercy, by withholding the judgment we rightly deserve. Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord When will it cease? When will it stop? Never. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. And so as a God who loves to forgive, he is a God who he is himself, the source of all true love. Without him, there would be no love. I think it is a universally accepted truth that love is good, right? What was it? uh, Was it um, the Beatles? All you need is love, love, love is all you need. I'm not a big Beatles fan, obviously, but 
There's some truth to that. Now, not the love as we, de we define it. Truly, all we need is the love of the Father given to the Son in which we are able to become partakers through faith in Christ. And there's a reality that, that comes to play that while we are made in God's image, we can exhibit a level of love, truly only our un, truly understanding love in its full glory comes through knowing Christ alone. As John reminds us in 1 John 4, 8, anyone who does not love God does not know God because God is love. But as a loving God, can he just overlook sin? He say, oh, I love you so much, I'm just not going to be concerned with your rebellion against me. Can God do that? No. Does God look the other way when we sin? No. He hates all sin because he is holy. He despises it. And as we saw in Romans chapter 1, God reveals his wrath from heaven against sin, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Which brings us then to question 10. How can we please God? If, if, this, if this God of goodness is a God who is perfectly good in every facet of his character, which means he has to punish sin, is there a way for us to be right with God? The answer is yes. We can please God by relying on His grace for the power to love, trust, and obey Him. Yes, God's goodness is so good that He provides a way for us in Christ alone that we can be relieved from our sins and the punishment that they deserve. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15, the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for who? Themselves. Seeking goodness on their own way, but rather for him who for their sake died and was raised. So I want us to close this evening by looking back at Jonathan Edwards' statement. God, in seeking his glory, seeks the good of his creatures, and in communicating his fullness for them, he does it for himself because their good, which he seeks, is so much in union and communion with himself. God is their good. It is not just a fact that God is good. It is a fact that God is your good. He must be your source of good. Now the world in which we live today fights tooth and nail against this concept. I want to close this section on the goodness of God by quoting Presbyterian pastor Rebecca Peters in a sermon where she is arguing for the innate wisdom of women to know that abortion can be a good choice 
she reinterprets the fall of humanity. Now, just a quick, quick note. I am not in any way, shape, or form saying that what she is saying is good. I'm using this as an example to show how we fight against the goodness of God. She looks on Eve's choice to take the fruit, not as an act of rebellion, but of authentic human wisdom. And you're probably thinking to yourself, what in the world? Let me, let me, let me quote you for, or let me quote her for you. I quote, this is, what, this is what Pastor Rebecca is saying. I love the story of Eve in the garden. My second child is named Eve. When we look at it with fresh eyes, it's quite, rem- it's quite a remarkable story. This is her words. Have you ever noticed that God lied to Adam and Eve? Well, the serpent plays the role of the foil here. He is meant to set Eve up for her role as the bringer of wisdom and moral agency to the human community. The setup for this action that she takes is that God lied to her. She then quotes God's warning to Adam and Eve in Genesis. She goes on and says, And the serpent reveals the truth. You won't die for God. You won't die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And this is what she says. And here we get to the real heart of the story. The verse in which Eve acts on behalf of all humanity. In fact, the moment at which Eve not only exercises her own moral agency, but she chooses that very trait that defines our humanity. That knowledge that makes us moral creatures. Our ability to know good and evil. And if you look in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, after the serpent had lied to Eve, let's get this very straight. God is not the liar here. The devil is. But notice what Eve does. So she took, um, I'm sorry, so when the woman saw that the tree was what? Good. This pastor is actually taking that and saying this is the very definition of what it means to be human. That we can decide for ourselves what is good and what is evil. She goes on to hold up Eve's own determination of what is good and evil as a virtue that all women can have in exercising for themselves. And then she likens it to letting them have the choice of whether or not it's good to bring a pregnancy to term. Now, the argumentation here for abortion is, is secondary to the underlying, absolutely terrible way of looking at this passage. Her argument is that Eve better knew what was good than God did. And that this is a virtue that should be cherished and cultivated in all of humanity. What a perversion of what God is saying in Genesis chapter 3. 
This woman takes the rebellion of Eve and turns it into some sort of virtue that defines what it means to be a human. She takes the enemy of God, the serpent, and treats him as almost a sage guide to help humanity come into their own. This is the very opposite of what Genesis 3 teaches. And yet, it is the very way in which the entire world responds to God. Adam and Eve are not the heroes of the story. They, both of them, are both villain, villain and victim. They're victims of their own villainous actions. And despite the creative and inventive prevent, uh, interpretive hoops through which Rebecca Peters jumps, the point of Genesis 3 is not to lift up Eve as some moral agent determining good and evil for herself. Rather, the passage is a warning against that very thing. For when we think that we can obtain goodness apart from God, we only bring disaster upon ourselves. Now, you hear what she says, and I think you're rightly revulsed by that line of interpretation. But let me tell you that that way of thinking is more insipid and more common in your own thinking and in my own thinking than we would like to let on. Because every time, every time we choose sin, we are saying, I can determine what's good for myself. Every time we rebel against what God has said, every time we look at his word and we say, yes, I know that God said this, but. And we elevate our own way of thinking over what God's word clearly says. We are saying, I can choose what's good. The message of scripture is that God is good. As Jonathan Edwards says, God is not just good, He is our good. We've spent over ten Wednesday evenings reviewing ten questions supported by ten passages that herald the goodness of God. Why do we need to be reminded of this? Because we're still like Eve. Because we want to determine what is good for ourselves. We want goodness to exist without any reference to God. So Scripture presents in full clarity the goodness of God. Our response to this must be to repent of seeking goodness in anything else but Him and find God Himself to be our good. Is he your good? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that it speaks so clearly. Father, may your spirit take your word here today and challenge us, Father, to not be like Eve. To not seek goodness in anything else but you. 
Thank you that you are good and only ever do what is good. Work in our midst through your spirit as only you can. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us here in person. Thanks for joining us online. Have a great week.